Evening, everybody, or afternoon, I should say, still. Good to be here. Good to see all of you. <clears throat> and isn't it uh, very special, uh, this concept of, of people uh, being together in the same place at the same time? Being I can hardly hear you, Norman. Thank you. I was saying, uh, first of all, I said, good afternoon. And then I said that, isn't it amazing and surprising that we could all be together physically in the same place at the same time, be in each other's physical presence? It's the microphone. Ah, okay. How about now? Can you hear me now? Robin, can Good. you hear me? You can. Good, Good afternoon. <laughs> Isn't it something that we can be together physically in the same space and occupy the same time that we can be in one another's presence? <clears throat> this is uh, a miracle that you cannot reproduce. I don't think anybody will be able to reproduce this particular experience. And that's an experience that uh, we have taken for granted forever, really. And now, suddenly, we're not taking it for granted anymore because it's a rare thing. Now, in saying what I just said, of course, I'm not talking to you guys on the computer because you're not here. And you are not experiencing this very special, miraculous presence. You're experiencing something else, which I hope is also useful to you and worthwhile to you. But nevertheless, <clears throat> no doubt, it's different, right? It's different. I learned from <clears throat> Michael Sawyer that uh, when we are together in a group of people, our nervous systems are engaged radically differently from when we're alone. So it really is physically, spiritually, psychologically, a really different experience. One face shining into another face through the medium of the air that connects us. And I've always been really impressed and always turning over in my mind this profound teaching uh, of Dogen's, this idea of face-to-face -face transmission, one of his key essays is face-to-face -face transmission. And he insisted on this face-to-face. -face. He insisted that the connection between us in the Dharma be personal literally in person, literally face to face, in space and time. Not spiritual, not ethereal, but concretely face to face. And did you ever think the human face is an incredible thing? I mean, it is so expressive. It's like nothing else in the world what a human face expresses. 
it, it is so uh, alive and so much uh, tells the world and the universe, you know, who we are and what's going on in our hearts. But it is actually a tremendous challenge to be face to face. It produces a subtle kind of anxiety to meet one another face to face, to take in another person, to be ourselves taken in by that other person, to be open and vulnerable in the presence of another person, this is actually not easy. What if the other person doesn't recognize us? What if the other person recognizes us as other than we think we are or ought to be recognized? Or they recognize us in a way that inflates us or deflates us or they want to somehow, in their very recognition of us, want to possess us or change us to suit. They want to use us in some way or defend against us or shrink away from us or come too close for comfort. It's not easy, actually, to be truly face-to-face -face with another person to fully accept the other in that moment as oneself and to give oneself to the other in that moment, to fully accept another as another and to fully give yourself to another as another. This is really something. And it requires a wholeness of self that most of us can scarcely imagine. A wholeness that might even be scary. And that's why ordinary, everyday human relations are so fraught and so full of peril. And almost all of this is below the surface, below even what we can feel and understand. So we undergo this challenge all the time and we probably don't even notice it. That's the reason why they always serve alcohol at parties. That's why. <laughs> But there are some people who really do feel this, you know. It's not too far below the surface for some people. They feel it. And that's why being among people for them is really very stressful and difficult. And it may actually be better for those people to withdraw to some extent from others, to be quiet, solitary, peaceful. The religious life, which is essentially that kind of a quiet, 
life of withdrawal from the world has always attracted people who feel that way. To escape from a troubled and complex world to a peaceful monastery or a cave in the forest has always been attractive. It's one of the chief ideas in Asian literature, you know, leave the capital, go to the country where it's quiet. People in cities, I know lots of people who live in New York City who say, you cannot live in New York City unless you get away for several months a year to the country because you can't stay there all the time. Get away from it all. Which means get away from the other people and all the stress and trouble that other people always bring. So this is what the monk in the first sutra we're reading tonight is like. This is what he wants to do. He loves solitude. He lives a peaceful and pleasant life. He meditates alone. He begs for alms alone, going out and coming back by himself. He's happy with it. But he doesn't realize that this pleasant life is actually a life of painful avoidance. Maybe he has no choice. Maybe it has to be this way with him. Maybe it's okay that he's that way. Oddly, exactly the same kind of painful avoidance of others can occur among people who are really, really social. People who can't stand to walk into the house without turning on the radio and the television. And then they pick up the telephone and call a friend, usually to make an appointment to visit somewhere. People whose social calendars are constantly full of events and get-togethers of various kinds. And it's the same phenomenon, only in this case, you avoid the challenge of meeting others face-to-face -face by constantly surrounding yourself with others and filling one's life with social encounters that are actually distractions from one's loneliness. And these people may live full and engaged lives and never really appreciate that actually their lives are built on a painful avoidance. And maybe this is how they have to live. Maybe they don't have any choice. And maybe there's nothing wrong with it, really. Who's to say, after all? And I think probably that is pretty normal in the world we live in. In the sutra, the Buddha is very gentle with this elder who craves solitude. Without frightening him, without telling him he ought to do something different, he gently 
shows him. And by the end of the sutra, the elder seems to appreciate what the Buddha has said, gently shows him that there is a better way to be alone, a way that is truly peaceful and whole, and that is not built on avoidance and a selfish solitude. And that's because this better way goes beyond the false dichotomy of being alone and not being alone, of being by oneself and being with others. It goes beyond that dichotomy to a deeper sense of being alive that includes everything as it is in every moment of that being alive. Because to really and truly be alive in this world is to always be alone and to never be alone. To know that in the whole universe there is only you, but that that actual you includes all the others. It's not an isolated you. So you really cannot ever be alone. And I, this made me think of a poem that a friend of mine uh, sent me the other day. It's a 1973 poem by my friend, the super brilliant American poet, Alice Notley. She wrote this poem at the time when she was a young wife and mother. And she is so, I just, I'm, I'm just like Emily Dickinson, you know, she's that good and that profound. So here's her poem, Dear Dark Continent. Dear Dark Continent, the quickening of the palpable coffin, fear, so then the frantic doing of everything experience is thought of. But I've, uh, but I've ostensibly chosen my uh, family so early, so early, as is done always, as it would seem always. I'm a two, now three, irrevocably. I'm wife, I'm mother, I'm myself, and him, and I'm myself, and him, and him. She has two sons. But isn't it only I in the real, whole, long universe, alone to be in the whole, long universe? But I, and this he and he, makes ghosts of I, and all the he's there would be, won't be, because by now, I am he. We are I. I am we. We're not the completion of myself, not the completion of myself, but myself through the whole long universe. So here's the sutra. I'm going to read the whole thing. I heard these words, it's the Teranamo Sutra, the Elder Sutra. 
I heard these words of the Buddha one time when the Lord was staying at the monastery in the Jada Grove in the town of Srivasti. At that time, there was a monk named Tara, T-H-E-R-A, Tara, which means elder. That's where Theravada is the school of the elders. He was named Elder, and he always preferred to be alone. Whenever he could, he praised the practice of living alone. He sought alms alone and sat in meditation alone. One time, a group of bhikkhus came to the Lord, paid their respect by prostrating at his feet, stepped to one side, sat down at a distance, and said, Blessed one, there is an elder by the name of Tara who only wants to be alone. He always praises the practice of living alone. He goes into the village alone to seek alms, returns home from the village alone, and sits in meditation alone. The Lord Buddha told one of the bhikkhus, please go to the place where the monk Tara lives and tell him I wish to see him. The bhikkhu obeyed. When the monk Tara heard the Buddha's wish, he came without delay, prostrated at the feet of the Buddha, stepped to one side, and sat down at a distance. Then the Blessed One asked the monk Tara, Is it true that you prefer to be alone, praise the life of solitude, go for alms alone, come back from the village alone, and sit in meditation alone? The monk Tara replied, It is true, Blessed One. Buddha asked the monk Tara, How do you live alone? And the monk Tara replied, I live alone. No one else lives with me. I praise the practice of being alone. I go for alms alone, and I come back from the village alone. I sit in meditation alone. That's all. Then the Buddha taught the monk as follows. It is obvious that you like the practice of living alone. I do not want to deny that. But I want to tell you that there is a wonderful way to be alone. It is the way of deep observation to see that the past no longer exists and the future has yet to come and to dwell at ease in the present moment free from desire. When a person lives in this way, they have no hesitation in their heart. They give up all anxieties and regrets, let go of all binding desires, and cut the fetters which prevent them from being free. This is called the better way to live alone. There is no more wonderful way of being alone than this. The Blessed One then recited this gatha. In observing life deeply, it is possible to see clearly all that is not enslaved by anything. It is possible to put aside all craving. The result is a life of peace and joy. And this is truly to live alone. Hearing the words, the monk Tara was delighted and he prostrated respectfully to the Buddha and departed. To me, the pith of what the Buddha is saying here to the elder is that true aloneness and true connection are not different at all. And this becomes clear if you really know how to be alive in the moment of your really being alive, face to face with reality. In the present moment, 
past and future are always here. So there is no present moment as we think of it. All of time is here in the thickness, the actual experience of being in time. The past and the future are present in the conscious mind as memory or thoughts or images of the past, maybe regret or various sorts of upset about what has happened, or in the case of the future, planning, imagining, worry, dread of the future. There's no past and future. Those are all present experiences of what we think of as the past and future. We don't know if there is a past and future. Maybe there is, but we really don't know. We know, though, that we think of them and we believe in them. And they're consequential to us because of that. But if we really understand this point, we do not need to be troubled by all of the anxiety and fantasy that separates us from ourselves and others. We could just live face to face with whatever and whoever is in front of us now, without worry, without fear, without regret, simply willing to be alive, not resisting it, not grabbing it. No more feeling incomplete, no more feeling like we just need this one thing and it'll be all right. This one thing that really and truly is never given because everything is always given to us in the first place. This, I think, is what the Buddha meant by a better way to live alone. So in his little book, Our Appointment with Life, Thich Nhat Hanh puts the sutra I just read for you and the second sutra together. And here's the second sutra, the Bhadakarada Sutra, the sutra on knowing the better way to live alone. So this is a further explanation of the same teaching. I heard these words of the Buddha one time when the Lord was staying at the monastery in the Jada Grove in the town of Srivasti. He called all the monks to him and instructed them, Bhikkhus! And the Bhikkhus replied, We're here! And the Blessed One taught, I will teach you what is meant by knowing the better way to live alone. I will begin with an outline of the teaching in verse, then I will give you a detailed explanation. Bhikkhus, please listen carefully. Blessed one, we are listening. The Buddha then recited, Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today. 
To wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day, one who knows the better way to live alone. Now the Buddha goes on to explain. Because what do we mean by pursuing the past? When someone thinks about the way his body was in the past, the way his feelings were in the past, the way his perceptions were in the past, the way his mental factors were in the past, the way his consciousness was in the past, when he thinks about these things and his mind is burdened by and attached to these things which belong to the past, then that person is pursuing the past. Because what is meant by not pursuing the past? When someone thinks about the way his body was in the past, the way his feelings were in the past, the way his perceptions were in the past, the way his mental factors were in the past, the way his consciousness was in the past, when he thinks about these things but his mind is neither enslaved by nor attached to these things which belong to the past, then that person is not pursuing the past. Because what is meant by losing yourself in the future? When someone thinks about the way her body will be in the future, the way her feelings will be in the future, the way her perceptions will be in the future, the way her mental factors will be in the future, the way her consciousness will be in the future. When she thinks about these things and her mind is burdened by and daydreaming about these things which belong to the future, then that person is losing herself in the future. Because what is meant by not losing yourself in the future? When someone thinks about the way her body will be in the future, the way her feelings will be in the future, the way her perceptions will be in the future, the way her mental factors will be in the future, the way her consciousness will be in the future. When she thinks about these things but her mind is not burdened by or daydreaming about these things which belong to the future, then she is not losing herself in the future. Because what is meant by being swept away by the present. When someone does not study or learn anything about the awakened one or the teachings of love and understanding or the community that lives in harmony and awareness, when that person knows nothing about the noble teachers and thinks, this body is myself, I am this body, these feelings are myself. I am these feelings. This perception is myself. I am this mental factor. This consciousness is myself. I am this consciousness. Then that person is being swept away by the present. They might feel very present, but in fact they're being swept away by the present. Because what is meant by not being swept away by the present. When someone studies and learns about the awakened one, the teachings of love and understanding, and the community that lives in harmony and awareness, which is, of course, the three treasures, 
when that person knows about noble teachers and their teachings, practices the, these teachings, and does not think, this body is myself, I am this body, these feelings are myself, I am these feelings, this perception is myself, I am this perception, this mental factor is myself, I am this mental factor, this consciousness is myself, I am this consciousness, then that person is not being swept away by the present. Because I have presented the outline and the detailed explanation of knowing the better way of living alone. Thus the Buddha taught, and the bhikkhus were delighted to put these teachings into practice. So here the Buddha is telling us what it means to be actually present. Not in the hedonistic sense of be here now, the present moment that we think about, not in that sense, but in a more profound and subtle way that automatically frees us from confusion, suffering, and alienation. And that's what it means to live alone. That's the better way to live alone, to really be free from confusion, suffering, and alienation, irrespective of whether we're alone or with others. I, I remember one of my teachers once telling me, and I, this so impressed me, and I practiced it for a long time. Maybe I still practice it all the time. When you're alone, practice as if you were surrounded by others. When you're surrounded by others, practice as though you were alone. So that's the better way to live alone. Because not to live alone, to be surrounded by others in the conventional sense, socially, them and me, is to be constantly subject to the push and pull, the desire and the attachment, the need and the fear, and eventually the conflict, however subtle, that is always involved in our human relations. So the Buddha is teaching a very, very special sense, a completely different sense of what it means to be alone. And how would you achieve this? And he explains, this is achieved by not pursuing the past, not losing yourself in the future, not being swept away in the present. And then he, as you heard, discusses each of these in turn. Not being, not pursuing the past means not thinking of your life, and he lists the five skandhas, because that's the content of our lives, form, feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness, that's our life not thinking of yourself or your life in a way that is inherently burdensome, sticky, and always in a position of lack. He's not saying that you should somehow censor yourself so you never think of the past, or somehow convince yourself that there is no past, or the past is unreal. The past, right now, is as real as anything else. 
So that's not what he's saying. He's saying that when you think of the past or have feelings about the past, don't take them so personally. Don't believe them so literally. Don't stick to them. Don't have so many regrets. Notice and appreciate your thoughts of the past. They're profound, they're interesting, they're important. Just let them come and go freely with full appreciation of them, even if they're difficult. We're usually thinking, ah, you know, if only I had done that, if only I had done this, only this or that had not happened. In all of our thoughts of the past, there's always some longing, some regret, some nostalgia. Oh, that was so great. I wish I was there again. Why can't I go there again? Instead of all that, just appreciate the miracle of being a human being, living the life of a person that you have lived, that nobody else has ever lived, nobody else will ever live. Maybe there was happy times, probably, painful times, probably, this way, that way. Everyone has lived the life that you've lived, and no one has lived the life that you've lived. So enjoy the past, enjoy all your thoughts and all your memories, celebrate the fact that you're capable of that amazing feat, you know, that very few creatures can accomplish. And why be burdened by it? Why, why put it together into some kind of a painful mixture? Even if you had a very painful past, and so many people have had a very painful past, <coughs> When you think of it with pain, remember that it's the human pain that anyone would feel in that moment if they had been through what you had been through and appreciate it. Not losing yourself in the future means that when you think of the future, you're not burdened or anxious or worried about it. Now, of course, you can plan I mean, imagine going to the airport and saying, well, I didn't make a reservation because I don't think about the future, but it's now, I'm here now, and I, let me on the plane. No, that would never work. You must plan. But don't be burdened, anxious, or worried about it. Yes, imagine how you're gonna do this and do that. Think about it in advance. Think about even all the things that might happen. I always think of the worst things that could happen. <laughs> I do. And I think, well, okay, if that happens, it'll be like this, you know. I mean, you might think, what if I get cancer? What if I'm having a heart attack right now? What if this means dementia is close by, this what I forgot just now. 
possible. Of course, these things are possible. And maybe you'll have all those things, or some of them. Whether you do, we know for sure that you will have a last moment, followed by no further moments of embodied consciousness as you have known it. So we think about all that. It's normal and natural. But can you think about it all without burden or anxiety or worry? Just appreciate and marvel that you are capable of having such thoughts, knowing, because you've experienced this a million times, that when whatever it is that you're worried about happens, it is going to be very different from the thoughts you had about it before it happened, even if it's totally terrible. So really, there is nothing to worry about. You can just appreciate that you have a mind, that you can think creatively. It's a little bit like writing a poem that doesn't mean anything other than the poem. In the case of not being swept away by the present, the Buddha responds with a different formula. The main thing he says here is that in the present, you want to be able to experience the five skandhas as flow, as time passing, rather than as me, 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 me. You are living. But in your living, you are letting things alone. I think that's maybe why it's the better way to live alone, because you're living in a way that lets things alone. You let yourself alone. You know, we're constantly manipulating ourselves, right? The biggest tyrant of all, right, is oneself. <laughs> letting ourselves alone, letting others alone. Letting everything be as it is without trying to make something other, of it other than what it is. From the Buddhist point of view, the only way that you could possibly live like that, because that is a very radically different way to live, the only way you could possibly live like that is to practice and study the teachings under the direction of the Buddha. Now, I take that as a very broad statement. I, I, I don't want to believe, and I, and I don't believe, that the Buddha is saying that in order to find the better way to live alone, you must be a Buddhist and follow the Buddha's instructions. But I do think that one way or the other, everybody needs to find a practice and a teaching that is more or less, less the equivalent in, in its incisiveness and power to the Buddha way, that touches this pivot point of reality that the Buddha is pointing to here, and that is capable of turning your life right instead of wrong the way it usually goes. It could be anything. It could be everything. But it has to be very specifically a turn of mind or heart that flips self-regard upside down and inside out so that you are capable of entering reality wholeheartedly or 
better say, you are capable of being reality wholeheartedly rather than standing over here outside of reality expecting somehow that reality is going to work for you. You're already doomed, right? But we do that. Isn't that what we do? Don't we say, isn't one of our most common expressions, which we say in all innocence, we don't know what we're saying. We say, yes, that works for me. No, that doesn't work for me. We say that all the time. It's, it's insane. <laughs> it's like saying, yes, I'm locking myself in jail right now. Throwing away the key, it's very damp in here and I'm going to catch a cold. That works for me. That doesn't work for me. I will live. I will not die. Good luck. And the last point that the Buddha makes in the verse and that I refer to here when I say, I will live, I will not die, is important. As he says in the poem, we must be diligent today to wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? This sounds like uh, we've heard this before. You always hear this in religion. A couple of talks ago, I was talking about the admonitions of Guishan. Guishan says this in the beginning of his admonitions, but you hear it all the time. Better get serious about your life. Death comes. You don't have much time. They say that in all religions, but I think Buddhism specializes in this. <laughs> But I think there's more to it than that. I think that it really means that the feeling of self and the idea of self and the idea of death are the same idea. They're two sides of a coin. And of course, this is more than just an idea. It's more than just a kind of ideological data point. In fact, it is the profound emotional underpinning of all of our experience, all the workings of our consciousness. I think this is very much in continuity with what we've been studying for a long time, starting with the practice period. <clears throat> the idea, the fact that the world depends on separation I am here and you are there, so we, here we are together. I'm not you and you're not me. And what makes me me and you you is the boundary between us. And the boundary between us means that we all have beginnings and endings. This is what I am. I am the one who begins and ends and is separate from everything that I am not and already I'm suffering. And that reality is built into all my experiences that I will end. So it's no wonder that I'm nostalgic and regretful about the past and worried about the future. I should be. <laughs> no wonder I have such needs 
including, maybe especially, the need for others to affirm me and love me, a need that will never entirely be satisfied. I have all that because I will end. And that's where the Buddha began, right? Sickness, old age, and death. If it weren't for that, the Buddha would never have left home and given us this teaching. That's why he says, you have to study and learn the three treasures. You have to practice them and make them, rather than yourself, the cornerstone of your living. Because when that's the cornerstone of your, of your living, there can be some actual foundational happiness. When you are the center of your living, it's a shaky, shaky proposition at best. <laughs> so I'm going to close with a poem of mine. A personal, this is called A Personal Poem. It's not this poem one wants, one wants another, another mind, in another time, another world, enough to wonder. I'm pushing a stone around in circles, or a circle, or it's not moving, I'm not pushing, am pushed. The circle makes a circle in a quiet body of water on another day I can now think of and care for. All the people I saw, I loved, somehow I am sure, and why or how would I not, if to see is already a form of affection or a distinct name for affection in a world of names. They are not interchangeable. One's not another, nor myself, nor anyone else, only came and made me less than we, us, a personal, plural, singular poem that's here, if I am, and they are, and we talk it through together. So I think these sutras are very profound in a way you wouldn't see, you know, if you didn't think about them a little bit. And, and this is really the practice we are all trying to do. And even though we're not doing it all that well, we are really trying to do it. And that is a great thing. And I think we're getting there, little by little by little. So, thank you for listening to all that. And now we're going to uh, go into the groups. And so, uh, while I'm explaining uh, the, the question for the groups, those of you who are online who want to escape because you'd rather be alone, <laughs> can, can, now, can now do that. <laughs> and the rest of the people in the room here are stuck, you know. I guess, not, not really, you could get up and leave, actually. Sometimes people do. 
Anyway, uh, we'll be in groups, and we're gonna. Uh, here's what I, I'm suggesting, if you if you want to, that you talk about. Talk about very personally in terms of your own experience and way of life, your need for solitude and your need for others in your life, and how you how you understand those and how you balance them. And in the light of that, if you have time for it, in the light of that. How do these teachings strike you? They may seem, I'm aware, they may seem maybe abstruse or completely impossible, but, but I don't know. So think about that together. So we'll have, uh, we'll do our usual four minutes, four minutes, four minutes, and about another four minutes after that. So that'd be, once the groups are formed, about 15 to 17 minutes. So uh, Shufi, are you, our Web, I mean our Zoom master tonight. You can put Liz tonight. No, I am. Oh, Liz is. Liz. Hi, Liz. Okay, so Liz will put everything.